Hey guys, it's Finn Hathrell here. Welcome to the first ever episode of the Grad Life Law podcast. This podcast was created after many requests by Grad Life listeners who want to know more about different legal careers. The podcast is sponsored by McCann Fitzgerald, who we are incredibly lucky to have as a sponsor, as they are one of the top law firms in the country. One of the things we've noticed about them, after speaking with so many different law firms, is that while clearly being a top-tier firm, they also have a clear human touch to what they do and are very forward-thinking. Partners are really involved with graduates and trainees, which seems to have cultivated this incredible culture where people stay there for a long time because they enjoy it and feel part of the community. So if you're looking for a career in law, definitely go check out their career site, as it seems to be a really great place to work. Anyway, hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks. Hey, let's do it. Hi guys, welcome to episode one, the inaugural episode of the Grad Life Law Podcast, where we're going to be interviewing several people in uh, the legal field, understanding what they do, uh, how they've gotten to where they are, what the options are uh, for anyone who's interested in working in law uh, in any capacity uh, over the course of their careers. So we really are extremely lucky today to have Karen Harty, who is a litigation partner in McCann Fitzgerald, uh, here with us. Karen, thanks a million for joining Delighted to be here. Thanks very much. So you are at the top of the ladder, uh, as they would say. And I'm very interested in kind of over the, next, the course of the next half hour, learning about your journey to getting there, uh, the highs and lows, the challenges that you face, the challenges that you face while raising four kids and uh, having a, a successful family life as well. But if you don't mind, the best place for us to start might be uh, maybe when you were about 18 or 19 years old and you were probably choosing to go in uh, to university, what course you would study. What were you thinking back then? What was your kind of mindset? Well, um, that is a very good question. And it takes me back to a pivotal point in my life, actually, Mark. So uh, I, at the age of 16, had a scholarship to go to Sandhurst, which you may or may not know was the um, the army, the, the Royal Military Academy, uh, where they train officers for the army yeah. in London. And... I was the first female in Northern Ireland to be given that scholarship. So it was a huge thing. And uh, essentially you, you did your A-levels then, you got a grant from them to do your degree and then you gave them five years. So that was the way that it worked. And having really gone through a grueling selection process, uh, I got the scholarship, which was just amazing. And then about a year in, I realized it wasn't for me. And uh, so when I was 17, I had this awful decision to make where uh, I just realized it wasn't quite what I was looking for. And I made the decision to drop the scholarship. And at that point, my parents were, were very upset about it because they saw it as, a, you know, it was a really amazing thing that I'd achieved and they wanted me to follow through on it. But my gut told me that it wasn't the right thing. So I pivoted and I applied for five very different subjects. <laughs> I think I applied for law, for French, for estate management, quantity surveying and classical studies. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I got the grades for law. Um, and I said, oh, law sounds like a useful degree. I mean, it was literally that scientific and I went off. I was very fortunate. I got into Queen's to do law and I got a good degree at Queen's, worked very hard and the rest is history. Um, mm -hmm. But I certainly did not want to be a lawyer at that point and I had no family in the law. So it wasn't something I wasn't as if I was following a dynasty or anything. 
Yeah, I actually have two or three questions there. One thing you mentioned is something we hear a lot about, but don't have a great understanding of. Uh, I, over the last seven years, I'm still honing my understanding of it. The idea of going with your gut. Now you did that, What are, you were 17 when you did that, was it? Yes, I was, yeah. That's a tough thing for a 17 year old to do. Uh, pretty much clueless about the world they're going into as all 17 year olds are with respect. Uh, how did you, like, I see that as a muscle that you develop over time. Mm. How did you have a good enough follow your gut muscle to go against the advice of parents and all this sort of stuff? It's very hard to articulate it. I, I think you're absolutely right. Trusting your gut is so important. And I've had a small number of instances through my life where I've had to do that. And I've had to make a very difficult decision that was counterintuitive to mm. all of those around me. And ultimately trusting my gut was what got me to the next stage. Um, I, I think what happened was uh, in the course of being involved um, in the scholarship, I was meeting women who were senior in the army. Uh, and what I saw was that they were all administrators. Interesting. So I had had a perception of the life that I would have and the career that I might be able to have. And it started to dawn on me that leadership was not necessarily going to be part of that. And as a very bold 17 year old, I just felt that I was able for a leadership role. And I didn't think it was necessarily going to be feasible if I ended up in an administration role. So you're a bold and ambitious 17-year-old, female 17-year-old, and you've clearly got your eye on what you want, but you witness a glass ceiling very early doors. Yes, I, I think that's probably a good way of articulating it. And I, I was completely naive, of course, very green around the gills at the time. So, you know, if I had been applying logic to the situation, I would have stuck it out because I had the potential. And actually looking back, I probably could have driven through to achieve great things in that role. But at the time, I was seeing no role models, mm. uh, or at least the role models I was seeing were doing a job that I was not interested in and that I felt I might get sidelined into. So, um, you know, it's a bit like whenever I did get my degree and I had to make that decision because I, I was now interested in a career in the law, would I go to the bar or would I be a solicitor? which again was a difficult decision. Uh, and in yet the advice that I got was right uh, from the people around me, which was if I went to the bar, I would end up doing family law as a woman in Northern Ireland at the bar at that time. And that was not something that interested me at all. So that was actually an easy decision to make because I knew that if I became a solicitor, I'd have more options. How disheartening is it? To, so that's twice now you're kind of seeing things uh take shape against your will because of your gender. How is that, how does that strike you at that young age? Like I was always ambitious and quite an idealist and that sort of thing. And I haven't faced this sort of stuff. So I don't, I, I, I simply literally can't imagine what it's like. What Pretty is interesting. Um, welcome to my world. <laughs> and, and I don't say that cynically, but yeah. women throughout the course of history have had to face those kind of obstacles. I've been very fortunate in truth, because in my career, I haven't felt that I met obstacles uh, that have prevented me progressing. But it is certainly something that uh, as a young woman growing up in Northern Ireland, um, those sort of things came along a lot. And I actually went back and spoke to pupils in my school a couple of years ago 
um, and uh, we're talking about careers and there were so many girls at my school, my former school, who didn't feel that a career in law was really uh, for them, even in, was it 2017? So uh, perhaps Northern Ireland has a bit of catching up to do um, in that regard. But uh, certainly I have been very fortunate uh, since I came to Dublin to work, I, I've you know really been able to progress and I haven't met barriers in that, in that sense, but they are a reality for so many women. And it's really important to acknowledge that. Totally. When you've got external voices and narratives saying that there are glass ceilings and limitations, et cetera, and roadblocks, what internal narratives do you start to develop in yourself? Or, you know, how do you overcome that? Well, my mother is a very strong lady. <laughs> and she always made it very clear to me from I was tiny that I shouldn't take no for an answer and that I was capable of doing anything that I set my mind to, uh, which was largely true. I discovered uh, when I was about 16 that I was really very bad at additional maths, which was uh, a subject that we had to study up there. But uh, apart from that, um, it has proved to be true. So, yeah, I probably have a strong headed element the term force of nature has been used. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a compliment. That's a great term to Probably. be. Probably. Yeah, to have used about you. Okay, that's great. Because look, there's going to be a lot of young women who want to uh, take a, either the path you have taken or a similar one, who are going to get a huge amount of value hearing this because they're hearing the same externals. And so yep. to, to, to be given something internal, I think will make a massive difference. Um, you said there, that when you went in, when you were going into QUB, you thought about a couple of different courses. One of them was French, and I, yes. I don't know what the others were. There's a there's a curiosity, color, open mindedness there, mm. and you went into corporate law, which can sometimes be seen as not being as colorful. You obviously have that innate curiosity in you. How have you uh, fostered that over the years during a career in corporate law? Well, I think one of the big mistakes that people make is that they are too blinkered. And how can I articulate this? So, you know, you can't be a really good lawyer if all you can do is law. That's, I'm definitely going to be putting that quote on one of the social media pages. Very interesting. But I mean that quite seriously. So if you have a limited perspective as a lawyer, you're not of value to your clients. So in order to be really good at law, you have to be interested in the world and what's happening in the world. So whether it's current affairs or modern languages or literature or film or whatever the manifestation is, you, there has to be more to it. Otherwise you won't be a good lawyer. You might be technically very able, but you won't give the value add that people come to a firm like McCann Fitzgerald for the value add. Uh, so, um, you know, and this is something that worries me these days, uh, because I think that people's perspectives are constantly being narrowed by social media. They're constantly being narrowed by reading everything online. I'll give you an illustration. Uh, my two eldest kids are 12 and 14. They're being remote schooled at the minute. It's very difficult for them. And as something to give them last week, I said, OK, from now on, we're going to buy a hard copy newspaper every day of your choice, and you're going to read it. And they thought this was very old fashioned. 
but we started this experiment. And what they've discovered is they're seeing stuff that they would never have seen reading it online. Because when you read stuff online, it learns your preferences and it keeps sending you the same stuff. So your perspectives get narrowed all the time. It's been a really interesting experiment. Um, but I see this all the time when I'm looking at talent coming up through, I'm looking for the people who have more to them than they've just done internships in law school or in law firms, or, you know, they've done really well in a law degree. That's great. It's great to have done well in a law degree. But, you know, I'm interested in the guy who's worked on a boat in Rotterdam Harbor for the summer or uh, the, the woman who has, you know, worked in a spa shop for three years uh, during, you know, uh, evenings or whatever, because those people have got perspectives that are so much broader, inevitably, because of the experience they've had. I'm interested in people who read fiction. I'm interested in people who can talk about whatever it is, and it doesn't have to be prescriptive. You know, if your thing is sci-fi films, great. I'm interested in talking about that because those perspectives bring the value add to what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Hmm. Funny, like everything you're saying here, I do a lot of career guidance and I try to push on college students that a big thing for grad employers is that they want to hire adults and not children. Yes. And the student would now invariably say, what's the difference? And I have one line, the difference is the adults think for themselves. And already we're going back to this idea of going with your gut because yeah. I'm a 22, 23 year old uh, woman in college who's studying law and wants to get into McCann's and is just under so much pressure to have the right internship and the right grades and all sorts of stuff. And she might go up for a McCann's uh, interview and show up as a child because she hadn't gone with her gut and hasn't done say the boat trip or whatever else it is. Yeah. What, what do you, I guess you kind of already said it, but you know, what do you say? Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I say, um, perhaps for me, the most important thing is reading. Read anything and everything. Mm. Because that is really, of all of the things you can do, that is the thing that really broadens your perspectives. And you can see the difference between the people who read and the people who don't. Uh, it's very marked. And it is becoming increasingly rare for people to read for pleasure. People read because they have to read. And if they do read, they read sort of almost capsule uh, format things online or whatever. No, that's not what I'm talking about. It's that inherent curiosity that is involved in picking up a work of fiction. I'm reading a book at the minute, uh, which is actually a sci-fi sci novel by a guy called Gregory Maguire, who wrote the book Wicked, which became the musical. I don't know if you are familiar yeah, with that. Yeah. And I picked it up because my kids are reading the Wizard of Oz series, the original one. Yeah. And it reminded me that this guy had written this really good series. And I've really enjoyed it. Actually, it's brilliant pandemic reading. But I mean, I might, you know, next week I might be reading something about the science of sleep or something. I'll read anything because I'm I, I constantly want to be challenged and I want to uh, just lose myself I suppose in it's actually a very good stress reliever so if you're looking for ways to manage your stress reading is, is a great way to do that but people say but I'm too busy but I was uh, on Twitter last week Nicola Sturgeon uh, was talking about the books that she's just read uh, she mentioned three different fiction novels 
if Nicola Sturgeon has time to read, you have time to read. <laughs> it's funny. I learned this. Running a country. I, I, I fell into the trap that you're talking about where young people who want to get ahead and be top performers will read all the non-fiction books. Yeah, all the non-fiction books that they're recommended and they think will give them an edge. The way I would summarize is non-fiction books will give you information. Fiction will give you wisdom. And again, that idea to process colorful ideas and think for yourself. And that's what people are looking for out of young people. They're not looking for the information. They're looking for someone who, who has that processing power. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think it's kind of a given that mm. if you've done well at law in university, you have the knowledge you need in respect of the subject. Um, it, it, it's that broader appreciation of life that you build as you get older. And it's just a way that you can do it, which happens to be very pleasurable, to be honest. And, you know, it might similarly be, somebody might say, well, look, I'm not much of a reader, but I love film, great, or whatever it is. Um, I had a brilliant uh, interview once with a candidate for a traineeship who we talked about, was she into reading? She said, no, but you know, I absolutely love magazines. And we got into a great discussion about the different magazines, the Vanity Fair and whatever. So I'm not being prescriptive. I suppose what I'm saying is, please don't, if you're thinking of practicing law, you know, don't allow yourself to be too narrow in your perspectives, that's all. Actually in any job, you know, if you want to be good at a job, you need to, have other things in your life. Otherwise so, you become very dull. I agree. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm that 22 year old student, I'm hearing you say this, I'm thinking easy for her to say she's already a partner. I need to really knuckle down and get this, put the blinkers on for five, 10 years. When did you start to appreciate the multifaceted, you know, that, that there are several lanes on the highway that need to be addressed. Family, well-being, just downright enjoying your life. Outside of it was, I think it was when I was a young solicitor in Belfast. So I qualified in Belfast and I worked for about a year before I took the job in Dublin and McCann's. And my master, in the days when it didn't seem weird to talk about having a master, I was an apprentice solicitor and you had a master and an apprentice. And I, my master was um, a lawyer in Belfast who had this perspective. And, uh, you know, you, you could see that he was interested in a lot more than just doing his job. And, and I think that probably did inspire me. Um, the other thing that I started doing when I was an apprentice was doing media defense, working with newspapers. And so I'd go in and I'd advise them uh, on a Friday night on their uh, copy for the Saturday or go in on a Saturday and I'd look at the Sunday paper, whatever it was. And I was advising and I was having to make decisions about what they could and couldn't publish. And you can't do that if you don't know what's going on in the world. So I, I think I always had a very keen interest in current affairs and sort of geopolitics and so on. Um, but actually, from just that experience of advising tabloid newspapers, for example, uh, in Belfast, you know, I, I saw everything um, uh, in a very colourful way, um, but I was also advising broadsheets and I suppose I got perspectives on uh, the different editorial lines that people would take in different newspapers and so on. Um, so that, that probably is what set me along the way. But I, to be honest, my husband is also somebody who thinks very like I do on this. 
And so he's a senior counsel, but he's also an incredible chef. He's brilliant at making um, the most exquisite Christmas decorations. Uh, you know, it, it, you could sort of name off his achievements because he's just interested in so many different things and he reads a lot as well. And what brought us together was our love of, of literature. So I, I, I just think that, um, I, I think life would be very boring if all <laughs> I did all day was think about law. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And you I'm, should enjoy what you do. Totally. And kind of enjoying things outside of that as well. I, I couldn't agree more. There's so much more to it. Uh, this is just out of my own interest because I grew up looking up to uh, Tony O'Reilly. And you talk about, I, I read that you were involved with, I think it was INM and the different papers. That, the, so you're in, you know, you obviously can't talk about cases, but yes. some, some very interesting editorial uh, back and forth back in the day with INM. That's a huge part of Irish culture and Irish society. It looks to me to be quite an honor to get be able to get involved in that sort of stuff and to play a role in, in you know, the, the, the weaving of Irish history and culture over the years. That must be I, one of the big benefits of the job. I suppose. I mean, I was very lucky as an apprentice to get to do that type of work and I had a knack for it. It's probably fair to say it's not for everybody mm. because you're sitting with an editor and you're having to make decisions. Talk about trusting your gut. If you're sitting with an editor who needs to get something um, onto the page and you're a, you know, it might be something where you're making decisions that could cost hundreds of thousands if they go wrong. Uh, you know, it's, it's serious stuff. So I was very lucky. And um, I, I should say for clarity, I never did the pre-publication for INM. Uh, I did uh, do the Sunday Times pre-publication for about four years. Uh, I did the Daily Mail when I was in Belfast. I did uh, the Sunday World and the Star and a, a variety of different newspapers. And, and today I still do a little bit of it for clients who ask me to do it. Um, I'm, I'm not as good value these days because I'm too expensive, but <laughs> every now and again, there's something that's so important that they want me to look at it. So. Yeah. Being a media expert back then, let's just call, let's just say you were a, within the context of law, a media expert. Is that the same as being one now or has media moved on so much that it, you know, is it a kind of struggle to keep pace with all of this change from within the, from behind the legal wall? Well, I've always specialized in it as well as being a commercial litigator, it's always something. So I have a team of specialists here who specialize in media defense for a range of different publishing clients, whether it's broadcasters, digital publishers, uh, platforms, social media platforms, and then the sort of more traditional newspapers, all of whom now have an online presence as well. Mm. So it's changed a lot, but the basic principles haven't changed. And the law has evolved, I suppose, the European Convention of Human Rights has been a huge influencer actually on that um, with the rights to freedom of expression and rights to privacy and a lot of case law coming out of Europe. So it's a very interesting area to work in. And then obviously with uh, ex-President Trump now, we have um, you know, all the pressure to amend the law in the US to make it easier for people to sue the platforms and so on. So there's an awful lot of uh, things going on. It's a very hot topic at the moment. It's a very interesting area, but it is certainly an area that's great to get to work in because you get to make decisions and you learn how to make decisions and you have to have the conviction mm. to say, this is what I think. And you don't have the option of saying, well, on the one hand and on the other hand, and it's over to you really, you know, you, you do have to help, but also 
you're helping editors and journalists to actually do the thing in a way that's safer. Yeah. So you have to be quite good with language and you have to be able to speak their language. So there's no point me coming up with some sort of legalese paragraphs that they can put into their article that'll be safer because that won't work with their house style. So you have to be able to really, whatever, whether it's a tabloid newspaper or, you know, an entertainment magazine or whatever it is, you need to be able to use language that will work for their readership. Yeah, okay. So it's a very interesting area. And the use of language is something that my team will tell you I'm obsessed with. I'm obsessed with it too. It's funny, I, was, I, I wanted to be a barrister, but then I realised I couldn't travel as much, so I went down the software route. But uh, So you talk about maybe use of language, communication, curiosity are three key things that would drive uh, success in this career. Uh, Two-sided question, what else would drive success? What else should people be saying, yeah, I have that, I'll do this. Uh, and what are, you've seen a lot of people maybe try and fail this career and fail at different, you know, take different exits on the highway. They might have stuck around for five, ten years and realized that it wasn't going to suit. Uh, I always tell these guys that the goalposts constantly change throughout your 20s and constantly move. You know, you've probably seen people take different exits based on that. Could you speak to us a little bit about that and what you have seen be sustainable attributes and motives uh, for, for corporate, corporate legal careers? Yeah, okay. I mean, it's a very interesting question. And I suppose there are a couple of things I suppose I'd mention. Um, you do have to be ambitious and you have to be driven. So you're going to work very hard in a career in law. That sounds kind of obvious, but, um, you know, that really hard graft that you need to do to build up the expertise, uh, there's no getting away from that. So it is a career where we work very hard. We work long hours. Can I ask, driven by what? Driven by uh, a sense of justice, driven by money, driven by the, the desire to be the best problem solver in the room? Which of these kind of stands out? Because I'm, I'm sure all three are valid to some extent. Um, there's lots of different things. Money has never been a huge thing for me, I have to be honest, uh, as a motivator. Um, I, I'm motivated by finding solutions, certainly. Um, it's more than that. I, I get a, a lot out of working with people here in the McCanns who are at the top of their game. I get a huge amount out of interacting with people who are just incredibly professional, very knowledgeable, great colleagues, great to be around. And um, that is a big motivator for me. So if I didn't have that, would I enjoy my job as much? I don't know. But when I'm talking about being driven, I suppose, yeah, it is results. It's about results and it's about getting results for your clients and building relationships. So relationships are a huge part of what I do. You know, I, do, I don't just advise my clients. I really get to know them. I really get to know their business and to try and understand their needs as a business and as individuals so that you can get them to a place where they need to be. There's no point a lawyer coming along imposing a solution that actually has no practical benefit for the client mm -hmm. or is going to cost money that they don't need to spend, for example. So, you know, although it may sound counterintuitive, for me, a good outcome for a client is where they spend less than they thought they might have mm -hmm. to to get a result that was quicker than they thought. Uh, it, it doesn't happen very often in a regulatory context where I do a lot of regulatory work and that's sort of one area where unfortunately things take much longer than anybody would like and you know that they, they can be costly and so on 
but you're constantly driving to get the best outcome for your clients. And I, I get a lot out of that. I can imagine it being hugely rewarding uh, having trust of such magnitude placed in you by people and companies alike. I can imagine that being a huge driver for uh, solicitors. I haven't really thought about that before, but that's actually clear now. Yeah, and, and I suppose the second thing I would just call out is, and I think, you know, the profession is changing a bit. Um, but some of us are still clinging to the old ways in terms of, you know, the collegiality of the profession is a really important driver for me. And not being the sort of person that dumps on a colleague from another firm just because you can, you know, to actually be the sort of person that will give a colleague a dig out if they need it. Now, obviously, only if it's in your client's interest, but that th there's a sort of an increasing practice of aggression that you see emerging and um, people feeling they need to be aggressive to be effective. In my experience, being aggressive is rarely effective. You can be formidable without being aggressive. So mm. for me, um, getting to work with colleagues in other firms who are very good at what they do and interact with people uh, or judges, you know, who we have some of the best judges in the world here in Ireland. Like I get a huge amount out of that. So that to me is, is another big driver. On the topic of motivation, I'm trying in my head to draw a parallel between or an overlap between what motivated you at a young age to want to go to Sandhurst and what's still motivating you today. Is there an overlap there, do you think? Is there something to do with service or justice or something? Yeah, that, that justice word, you keep bringing up that justice word. Uh, one of the funny things about being a lawyer is that actually justice doesn't come up very much. <laughs> that, that makes me sound very cynical. Certainly not when you're a commercial litigator. Um, yeah. But, uh, sorry, that sounds terrible. Um, I suppose what I'm saying is that, you know, I don't spend a lot of my time thinking about human rights, for example. That's not yeah. the type of lawyer I am. I think if you're the sort of person that's down at court representing individuals, um, in criminal cases, that's a huge thing that would motivate you. It's just not the type of work I do. Um, but uh, is there is there a unifying thing? Well, I suppose from my point of view, I always wanted a challenging, rewarding career. And that's just the sort of person I am. I like to progress. I like to be somebody who makes a difference. Uh, as opposed to just being a passenger and sitting back. And um, so, you know, over the last number of years, I'm quite well known for my work in the innovation space, um, the future of legal services, the use of machine learning for legal services, things like that. And uh, that's partly curiosity on my part, but it's also an area that I think is hugely important to us as a profession in the years to come and so i want to be involved in that and I, and I want to try and drive change that is better for our clients through using the technology that's available so i suppose it's just about um making a difference probably yeah and they're both cultures you put yourself in do you try to put yourself in two cultures or sorry you did that really pushed you to get the best out of yourself which i think is a very healthy thing for these guys to take on as well yeah uh, this machine learning is this yes. something these guys should be looking into to give themselves an edge or to catch up with where things are going? Well, I certainly think it's hugely relevant to anybody entering the profession now. And I use the term profession advisedly. In the UK, they don't use that term anymore. They talk about the legal industry. Right. 
here in Ireland, we still talk about the legal profession because there is a distinction, I think, um, in terms of the just even the ethical rules that apply here and so on when you're a solicitor or a barrister. That's important to what we do. It marks us out, I think. Um, and those whole questions of integrity and so on. But undoubtedly, technology is increasingly a part of uh, our lives. It's not just your personal life at home, but it's you know what you're doing at your desk. So for example, if you're working on a big case, you're probably going to be using some sort of machine learning tool to sort the documents or to predict whether they're relevant or not to what you're doing. And it has applications all across the work that we do. Mm. And uh, it, it's an area where Ireland has actually been at the forefront, um, which people don't always realize. So we have a very good story to tell internationally in terms of the technology uh, that we use in our legal services and the way that we use it. Uh, so I think it's certainly an area that, you know, if you're interested in it, absolutely get into it because there's a, you know, firms are all looking at how they can leverage technology to improve the bottom line for their clients. Interesting. Okay, that's going to be very useful, I think. Um, I'm kind of conscious of time. I'd say we have uh, time left for three or four quick fires and maybe one or two uh, longer questions. One of which is, you are noted for having uh, had a very successful career and also a very kind of happy and fulfilled uh, family life. A lot of young women would go into these professions worried about, about their ability or bandwidth to balance those two things. What, what would be your comment on that or advice to them? It's not easy, but it's very doable. And I think everybody's circumstances are different. I think if you want to have um, a career in something like the law or even accountancy, for example, so if you want to go into one of the professions, and as a mother, I think you need to make it as easy for yourself as possible. So you need to really look at your childcare choices. For example, if you have your child in a crash and you're having to meet their timings and that clashes with your professional obligations to be at meetings, that is incredibly stressful. So maybe you need to look at an alternative, whether you have an au pair or you know you may have sort of some sort of child uh, minding arrangement at home or whatever. So things like that are really important practically. Um, and it's, it's very hard work, but it's very hard work if you're minding a child at home full time. It's hard work if you're working part time. It's hard work if you're working full time. And as long as you don't mind a bit of hard work, it's really very doable. Yeah. Um, so. And you mentioned earlier, uh, credit where it's due, having an excellent uh, partner and, and teammate and your husband as well. Well, actually, that does make a difference. I mean, Mark, my husband, is a very hands-on dad and very hands-on at home, and we share the load between us, and that does make a huge difference. I think if one person is responsible for all the house stuff and the childcare stuff, uh, and the other person is just going out to do his job, uh, the reality is that the woman is doing two full-time jobs. Yeah. And that is very difficult. And I've never been in that position. So uh, I think that a lot of it is about um, picking the right partner. Interesting. Yeah, look, it, it's obviously a lot of people would be the most important part of life. So it's yeah, absolutely. And, and it is really important. And I think, you know, as employers, we really recognize how important it is for the people that work with us to mm. have fulfilled uh, family lives as well as fulfilled working lives and we do our best uh, to give people flexibility 
I think there's a lot still to be done in the profession to improve the amount of flexibility that people have. Yeah, we're all on a journey, but uh, definitely, I think people are more aware of it. And actually, the, the pandemic has made people even more aware of it. I, I think particularly men who might not have spent as much time at home with their families um, yeah. because they were working and now they have a better appreciation of what their wife does. Interesting. Hopefully that does accelerate the pace of change. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Um, okay, a couple of quick fires for you. One, if you were a grad now, what would be your priorities or what would you be, what would you be thinking? I would, well, actually, this is a really unhelpful answer. If I was a grad now, I would want to travel. And that's obviously not possible for anybody just at the moment, yeah. but it's the one thing that I didn't ever get to do. And I didn't get to do it because my, my family weren't well off. I needed to get working. I didn't have money behind me. So I never had the opportunity to go and travel. Although I have to say a couple of years ago, I was very fortunate to be given a sabbatical uh, of three months and I went traveling and did some traveling with the kids and that was fabulous nice. but if I was going back I, I would say you know if you want to travel get it out of the way when you can when you're young because once you start working you really want to be able to focus on your career and and if you dip in and out of your career you're not going to progress in the way that somebody who's there the mm. whole way through can do so and I would say take a long view on it you know people tend to have very short-term perspectives on work at the minute so they might you know we used to think about having a, a job for life i think increasingly people now think about two years or three years ahead and they don't really think beyond that and if you want to become an expert at something you, you need to have a longer perspective mm. my experience with travel i was in the bank investment bank wanting to travel and i always just had this itch that was pulling me away from my work and when i just went and scratched that itch and went to south america i came back I was delighted to be at work and I no longer had that itch and I was able to commit much more. Yeah. And I think that, that that could be useful for people. Um, that's brilliant, actually. Brilliant advice. Untimely, but brilliant. Um, <laughs> what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, the best advice I've ever received? Well, I had a great mentor um, who was a solicitor called Owen Catchpole, wonderful name, uh, in Belfast. And he actually gave me three pieces of advice, which I share with all of my trainees. And I can do that very briefly. So the first one is uh, never interrupt somebody when they're signing something. <laughs> Always charge something. If you do work for free, people won't appreciate the value of it. Yeah. Um, and never fall out with a colleague. Interesting. So, you know, th those pieces of advice are, uh, they've stood me. Um, and, yeah. and then actually, sorry, there's a fourth one, which is, don't advise friends or family because you can't be sufficiently independent. But that's a bit of a lawyerly one. But uh, yeah. I, I've stuck to that as well over the years. As a, as a software salesperson, the first one resonates for sure. <laughs> Don't interrupt them when they say, <laughs> uh, or if they say yes, stop talking. Um, <laughs> is there a book or a resource that you would recommend? And I say resource now because it could be a YouTube thing or you know a podcast um, that you would recommend for anyone. Now, if you don't have an answer, your answer is fiction. Read fiction. Well, yeah, read anything and everything. But yeah. at the minute, you know, I love my podcasts. And uh, when I'm walking into the office, if I'm if I'm in the office, I have my podcast on. I, I do love the Brexit Republic podcast, which is uh, an RTE podcast, which is um, an incredibly good 
podcast every week updating on what's happening with Brexit, which is so important for everything yeah. uh, at the minute. Uh, I'm a bit of a Brexit anorak, so uh, I, I think podcasts are a very, very good way to get information and uh, in an enjoyable way. And I've done a few podcasts myself recently, including this one now. So um, yeah. I'm chalking them up. But uh, yeah, I, I just think be curious. And uh, but, you know, in terms of reading, just read anything you can get your hands on. Yeah. And lastly, then a quote to live by. Is there a quote that you keep in the back of your head? There is. It's actually on my wall here. Very good. And it is by Emerson. And it is do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. That's so fitting. And and I have lived by that. So that they'll have that nice. written on my gravestone. That's honestly brilliant. Well, Karen Hartley, thank you so much. That's been it's it's been really fun, but people are going to get so much value out of this. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Not at all. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Cheers. Thanks a mil. Hey guys, just before we begin this podcast, I would like to tell you about our sponsors, McCann Fitzgerald, who we are incredibly lucky to have as a sponsor as they are one of the top law firms in the country. One of the things we've noticed about them after speaking with so many different law firms is that while clearly being a top tier firm, they also have a clear human touch to what they do and are very forward thinking. Partners are very involved with graduates and trainees, which seems to have cultivated this incredible culture where people stay for a long time because they enjoy it and feel part of the community. So if you're looking for a career in law, definitely check out their career site as it seems to be a really great place to work. Hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks.